0: and welcome to a Source podcast. I'm Julia Schiefer, the founder and editor of DerivSource.com. The referendum on the European Union, which is fast approaching, has produced a plethora of papers, articles, forums, tweets, and debates. They're not always of the highest caliber, and it is often difficult to cut through the grandstanding. However, a paper published by think tank, JWG, Brexit Changing Out of the Engine of Finance, shows if the UK exits, the country will enter a long period of uncertainty and the bureaucracy could become greater rather than less. In this podcast, I'm speaking to PJ D. Giammarino and to Aoife Quinn about the findings of this paper. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Julie. Good to be here.
0: So before I begin, I want to ask both of you to introduce yourself briefly, starting with you IFA.
2: I'm a research analyst here at JWG. Um, I've helped uh, write this paper. I've studied European law, so I have quite a keen interest in it. And um,
0: yeah, it was a good project. Sounds like you're well equipped to comment on this then. Perfect. And PJ, would you like to do a brief introduction?
1: Sure, Julia. I'm not a lawyer. I started this think tank 10 years ago on the back of something called the MIFID Joint Working Group. We look at all G20 regulation globally, how that affects the infrastructure and ops and tech in particular. We had took a keen interest in this particular topic because if it does happen, we wanted to know what it would mean for our membership.
0: Okay, great. Thank you. So the first question I have for you is, according to the paper, there is a popular belief that if the UK chooses to leave, it will be free of the current rulemaking environment. So why would the red tape become worse if the UK leaves?
1: Yeah, it's a common misconception and it's something when we started digging into it, we only we just realized how much more red tape there would be. It really comes, I think, a couple different levels. One one is at a global level. There are a number of commitments that have been taken amongst the G20 that would still need to be maintained. And there's a certain amount of red tape just with those and and understanding how the UK stays equivalent with the rest of the G20. But then there's also, in the drafting of the legislation in Europe, there's a lot of equivalence rules in that in order to be able to play on the continent, you still need to be able to meet a lot of the obligations. So the real challenge then for the red tape becomes, well, anything that's a delta between what you do on the continent or in the, the G20 and what you do in the UK. And that's really the, the fundamental driver, which is any of the rulebook tinkering that would occur.
2: So in terms of the exit process, we're looking at something which has never been used before. The Lisbon Treaty brought in Article 50 of the Treaty of the European Union. So this is a brand new mechanism which um, was set up to allow countries the option to exit, formally exit, the European Union. So the process for that is as soon as a country votes to leave, the formal notice has to be given to the European community. Once the, that formal notice is given, there's up to two years before formal withdrawal needs to take place. So during that period, there's negotiations happening. However, the UK would lose its seat in these formal negotiations concluded by the council. This means that it doesn't have a seat to, in terms of discussing its future. So this is quite a big thing because not only does the mechanism set in stone how the UK will leave, it also is the basis for setting how the future relationship between the UK and the EU will continue to function once withdrawal takes place. As we said before, the only example that we have to date of a country voting to leave the EU is Greenland and it never utilised this Article 50 protocol. And so there's so many uncertainties in the process, and they'll basically just have to be ironed out along the way as um, the withdrawal process takes place. Thank you, Aoife.
0: My next question is about the rule book. So, how much of the rule book and what type of rules will have to be rewritten?
1: Yeah, we took a hard look at the rulebook, Julia, and I think ultimately it came down to roughly 60% of the rules in the UK are derived from European law. And this is due to the fact that since 1972, a lot of what has been put on the books here comes directly from regulation, which under treaty then makes it directly applicable. What this means is that there's an enormous backlog of regulation, anything that Ends in an R, effectively, you know, MIFIR or AMIR or CRR, anything like that that people might be familiar with, will need to get put onto the UK books. And in that process, obviously, we can expect a bit of tinkering. But I don't think we've ever seen an environment where we didn't have the UK tinkering with the rules. It does it a lot of the, on the continent. It will be unreasonable to assume they would just get copy and pasted as they are. And this could mean very big business swings with one change of a paragraph. So things like change traded derivatives or things like how FX is treated or things like record keeping requirements. Those could all change. And ultimately then what that will do is introduce an awful lot of uncertainty about when and how, um, as Heath was saying, the actual decisions will be made about what the rules are that are applying. And that then falls to the courts. And the, one of the big things, I think, that it became clear as we were writing this paper is that when the European Courts of Justice rulings no longer can be relied upon here, you then have a, another dynamic of, well, what are the UK courts going to do and how are the UK courts going to weigh in? So there'll be an awful lot of uncertainty about the rule book and people will be making decisions based on partial assumptions and, and we'll have a bunch of very busy legal experts trying to advise everybody what, what they think is likely to happen.
2: Yeah, just to stress the issue with the Court of Justice of the European Union. Currently, countries have the option to refer a question of uncertainty to the courts, um, you know, in terms of interpretation. We're talking about here, if the UK votes to leave and suddenly they have no longer have access um, to refer questions to the court, understanding the basis of the laws which we're trying to rewrite, it becomes a huge um, obstacle. You have no reference point and that could create huge difficulties.
0: Sounds complicated indeed. Now, for the derivative source audience, they tend to be derivatives professionals who work in operations, risk compliance, regulation, of course, as well as technology. So one thing I noted is that the paper notes that it will mean that there's a huge operational undertaking costing an additional spend of potentially between 14 billion and 20 billion in regulatory change management with a medium estimate of a total cost reaching to 17 billion by 2026. These are scary numbers, so what are some of the biggest changes firms will have to do in the event of a Brexit?
1: I think just to break those numbers down a tiny bit, we looked at the cost model in terms of three different waves. So the first wave was the U.K. regulators reshaping their rules and establishing how they like finance to work here. But then the second wave being where U.K. has to then get wired back up to any kind of European infrastructure, which will then be dependent on treaties. And then the third final wave where the G20 picture would have to be sorted out again. So it's not like one wave of change, there'll be multiple changes. And the kinds of uh, changes we're most concerned about would obviously be anything that affected the way trading is actually done, any uh, sales trader workflow, any uh, risk calculation, any margining, any client controls and repapering, anything to do with your distributors or any potentially even your vendor agreements. So these are all very big variables. And it's all, a lot of those definitions, as we talked about earlier, tied up in regulation so that they would have to be modified and they have to be pulled out into a UK context, whatever the UK treaty negotiation status might be.
0: So we've talked about some of the impact in the operational cost potentially. What about action plans? What would you tell your potential clients or financial institutions, what their action plan should look like? and what the key items really should be on their checklist going forward.
1: Yeah, I think one of the things we we need to hit hard, and please, we'll cover this in detail in in the paper in a bit more depth, but there is an enormous irrational component to this change program, and it will be the mother of all change programs. No one will have ever seen anything this large before. One of the biggest issues will be the irrational component of the human response to what this means to their identity and anyone's you know, day-to-day life is framed by, I go to an office and I work with a team. That office might move. Your team might change. People may no longer have rights to work here. There'll be changes to the way people are able to support their families or even travel across borders. There'll be an enormous destabilizing effect, really, to everybody and especially to financial services. And yes, a number of people will obviously be able to stay under skilled visa programs, etc. but it, it may tip the balance for a number of them and they may choose to go elsewhere. So. There'll be a huge organizational gap. And I think that's one of the first things to to really get to grips with. Who can you count on in terms of actually continuing to run the bank or be able to conduct the business? And how are you thinking about making some of those decisions? Obviously, for a group outside Europe, it will have some choices about where to make, where to go. And some of those decision-making processes may change as well. But fundamentally, the biggest thing that we think people need to come to grips with is tracking their overall regulatory change portfolio and having the ability to spot, know, and then be eventually be able to do the changes in a, in a better, faster, and cheaper manner. And those firms that are really on top of knowing what they need to do and deploying the right kind of tech, we're big advocates of reg tech right now, and that they, they really need to be defining a consistent, repeatable way of getting to how they defined what they asked their infrastructure and, and operational targets to be. They need to be able to make that a very flexible, nimble, and robust capability.
2: The current industry estimates and the current um, estimates from the government suggest that this is a 10-year project. Getting your plans together now and getting them together early is going to be crucial. So yeah, I just wanted to stress the fact that this is a 10-year project. It comes with a 10-year bill. Firms need to be prepared and to
0: get in there early with their proprietary measures. So let's talk a little bit about the impact again. What will the impact be on business models? Will there be any winners or losers in this situation?
1: I think obviously the passporting rights will be one of the biggest variables in this whole discussion. And those that have access to the bigger market via other ways may choose to then remain in the UK or not. And there's there's a lot of speculation about how that would actually work. Ultimately, there will be winners and losers based on those that are on top of this kind of a massive change program and are are thinking about how do they de-risk it across their value chain, i.e. all the way out to the clients, and then all the way back down their supply chain, i.e. all the way down to the, the data vendors and everybody else that they're relying on. And that's a giant risk management exercise. So from a business model point of view, you're going to be thinking about how are you going to keep those clients? How are you going to look and position yourselves better in front of the competition just as much as how do I then lock in the right kind of services providers, lawyers, consultants, auditors, et cetera, that really know what's going on and are able to help manage through all this? They will be in very short supply. And we all know that the change management pool for REG is a large number of people, but the good ones that can piece all of this complexity together are are few in number. So it's critical to kind of think about locking down those arrangements now. And when we say this is not being a consultant and not being a lawyer, but obviously that's going to be a large part of the game. And ultimately, the winners are going to focus on the total cost of ownership and how can they get the right kind of end-to-end change management support that they need over the next decade.
0: We've talked about this already. You've mentioned it already about the psychological impact or behavioral change. Can you tell me a little bit more about the psychological impact or this behavioral change that will be required?
1: Yeah, I think anyone involved in the regulatory agenda now suffers a bit of regulatory burnout. It's not new. Those of us that have been at it since Pittsburgh in, in 2009, I have seen an Eiffel Tower's worth of paper already. And we've had to pick through it. We've had to fight about what every clause and footnote means and, and then tie that back to an the agreement and figure out what you're going to do about repapering a client. So the prospect of going through this all again is a bit daunting. And I think there is a, especially for the Source audience, there is a real potential issue with people just not having the will to fight this fight out. And I think in that Optic, you know, anything that firms are doing to make this more palatable for people at home and to be able to make it easier to come into the office and realize they need to apply their two decades worth of experience yet again for another decade, it can only help. And ultimately, those people you're relying on are biggest asset. And, and ultimately, if you're going to be out of compliance or because they missed something and you didn't have them on board. So that's really, I think, the biggest angle to stress is that we already are in a very high stress environment. We already have huge demands. This will just be ratcheting up uh, you know, a few extra degrees, but in doing so, may well break the current organization and the uh, operating model they have in place.
0: So it sounds like a Brexit would really be quite complicated and would greatly impact the financial services sector at a time when really this industry is already dealing with significant regulatory change and cost related to that. Thank you to PJ and Aoife for sharing their insight and the findings of this paper with our audience today. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Julie. Listeners, let us know your thoughts in the comments section on either Deriv Sources podcast show notes page or on iTunes. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this topic. We will also share a link to the JWG paper on the podcast show notes as well. So please go to that page on DerivSource.com to get information on the actual paper itself. Thank you for listening. Join us next time.